The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversation with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This podcast is a compliment to the Numinous School, my online intuition development program for people who want their self-awareness to serve a greater good. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and today on the podcast, I'm speaking with Rachel Rice and Mary Beth Bonfiglio. Actually, in today's episode, I'm the guest. Rachel hosts something called Confronting Whiteness, a conversation series. It's a brave look at whiteness, about what it means, where it came from, and how it hurts how it hurts others, and how we hurt in response to the pain it causes. In this conversation series, Rachel and her guests talk about how whiteness informs our businesses, our relationships, our politics, our spiritual practices, and our parenting, all the ways we walk through the world, all the ways we're conditioned to not even notice whiteness, and especially to not talk about it. The following is an unedited clip of our conversation, meaning I cut off the beginning and the end, but nothing in the middle. In this uh, excerpt, I talk about what's famously referred to in our household as the racist dinner party, and together we unpack some of the problems with a lack of resilience in white sisterhood circles, especially when it comes to shame and white fragility. It's an interesting conversation. But I'll warn you now that I throw a lot of fucks around. So if you don't like swearing, this is not the episode for you. Again, this is just half of our conversation. For the link to the full video, you can go to the show notes on my website, but I encourage you to check out the full series on rachelrice.com. That's R-A-C-H-A-E-L-R-I-C-E. Just for a little background, none of us are social justice experts. We're all just white ladies with strong opinions and low tolerance for bullshit. Rachel is a full-time artist, writer, and educator. And Mary Beth is a writer for social change, and she delves uh, deep into work around the mother line and does very cool work around tarot. Rachel and Mary Beth are each based in Portland, Oregon, and I connected with them in an online call. Rachel kicks us off, and Mary Beth weighs in a little later. Here's our conversation. Yeah, tell me, tell me why this, why you decided to um, fit this into your schedule. <laughs> well, um, so I live in uh, the traditional territories of the Lekwungen-speaking people, which are the Songhees and Esquimalt First Nations here, uh, and the rest of us settlers would call this Victoria, BC, Canada. So it's a little island, Pacific Northwest. If you happen to live south of me, that's how you would orient. (laughs) And uh, I have grown up in a very segregated racist culture. That's, you know, that's just the water in which I swim. I'm a fifth generation settler in Canada. And that means you know, my people moved from Scotland and people generally don't move from the homeland if things are going really great. And so that means that they knew what it was to be oppressed and cleared of your homeland so that you had to leave where you felt you had to leave um, because you couldn't resist. And so I come by my tendency to oppress really honestly. It's like in my blood, it's the intergenerational 
inheritance that along with other things, right? Like I'm, I'm very intuitive, which I get from probably the witches way back, but you know, from my Scottish ancestry, I love sheep. I don't know why that's just the landscape that I love. You know, I, I so there's other things in my blood, but oppression is one of them being mm. of your white European ancestry. And so, um, it took me a really long time to care about racism. Um, but now that I look back and see how, um, how willfully blind my, my culture was, but also how important, you know, hierarchy and rank is for kind of survival of your people. I, I, I just see the intergenerational trauma that I work with in my clients all the time. And, you know, it just, it didn't take too many steps to go from, oh, here are clients who are really suffering from trauma, abandonment wounds, addiction, to the culture. Mm. So as I studied, you know, Gabor Mate and, and you know, just, th there was also a really profound paper I read a few years ago called The Roots of Addiction in Free Market Society. Mm. And like that just, it, it talked about capitalism and like Welsh Canadian, you know, uh, Welsh people coming to Canada during colonization. And just like, it, it just suddenly I was like, you know, when you see the matrix, it's like you were just looking up at the night sky, seeing stars, and suddenly you see it, a constellation. Mm -hmm. And there's no lines that connect to the Big Dipper. But once you find it, you're like, oh, this is where I am. Mm -hmm. I, I feel located. And once I was like, holy shit. I'm a colonist, you know, imperialist oppressor living on unceded First Nations lands. And a lot of my trauma comes from my people and we're re-perpetuating it on others. And capitalism makes us feel deficient for caring about that stuff and crazy. Once I saw that, I couldn't help but see it everywhere. Mm -hmm. And then a couple of years ago at my, um, at my husband's parents' house, like my in-laws, um, we had what's gone down in history as uh, what we call the racist dinner party, where, you know, just casually liberal racist, you know, people, my, my in-laws, best friends just couldn't sort of stop challenging my appeals to like liberal white harmony. <laughs> and like Carmen just, I fucking lost it. Like, wait, 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 back up. Just unpack that for just a quick second. Who they were, they were challenging you. Yeah. They were just like, I said something about, so there's this, um, beach close to where my aunt lives in this area called, um, Kelowna. It's on Lake Okanagan and it's a segregated beach because it's first nations land. And it's awesome. <laughs> like, I think it's awesome because, you know, Lake Okanagan is this massive, like white tourist. It's like, Fort right. Lauderdale of BC, right? right? And so they have this one area that's for their nation that's like chained off with beautiful landscaping and like amazing public facilities and these signs that say like only First Nations and guests. And so I was like, fuck yeah. If, if all of like God's green earth had been taken from me, yeah. I would totally plunk it right in the middle of <laughs> like settler culture and be like, and we're going to just pump this place full of the best facilities and put a huge black chain link fence around it and say, yeah. you can't come in. I totally would do that. And so of course these locals just totally did not think it was so cool. And then we got into a huge thing about first nations and they're just, they just pumped out all of the, you know, they're alcoholics, they're racist, they don't take care of the kids, blah, 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 or sorry, they're lazy. They, you know, they don't take care of their kids. It was just, it was just like all the stuff. Whoa. About indigenous folks? Yeah. And, Whoa. and I, 
you know, at first it's like, come on now, and you're being really like kind. Anyway, the long story short was I just decided I wasn't going to let the bully have the last word. And so I just started making it super personal. I was like to the woman, I was like, what kind of mother are you? You can't empathize with somebody whose child was taken away. And the fact that you could never reconnect with it, like I just kind of broke it down into this like really personal thing. And like, of course, nobody liked that. <laughs> and so, you know, the men were like my husband and his, and, and his dad were like, totally arguing my case, but just in a very rational kind of way, mm-hmm. you know, like anyway, the long story short was I was about to flip the table mm-hmm. and Ruben's dad, so lovely, such a lovely man says this thing that I think just flicked a switch in my head. That's never gone away. And he said, you know what? I think we just are at the point where we just have to agree to disagree. After all." We're arguing with ideas, not with people. And I just was like, I, 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 I was like shaking. Like I was just like, no, they can't, no. We cannot concede that space. Why don't they concede? Why don't they say, you know what? We've come to your home and I can see that what I'm saying is like kind of upsetting for your daughter-in-law. Like mm-hmm. I'm just gonna back off. But they didn't. The entitlement and the, the right to subjugate other people was just, and the justification was, and I just couldn't do it. And the thing was, I'd made this like blue ribbon lattice topped peach pie and it was sitting on the sideboard and (laughs) Ruben's mom goes, yeah, why don't we all just have pie? And it kind of gets quiet and I look down and I start crying and I go, I'm sorry, I I can't. I, I honestly can't eat a single bite. I honestly can't. And I got up and I went and had a shower. I just left the table and then I went outside and I just stayed there all night until I saw them leave. And so, and here's the thing, I I go into the bathroom. I'm like, I have a shower. People are still at the table, but I'm like drying my hair. And my daughter, who at the time was like 10 or 11, she comes in and she's like, Hey, um, what are you doing? And I was like, Oh, I, I just, I'm having a shower. And she's like, are we going to have pie? Or no, she goes, what's going on with the stuff out there? And I was like, oh, well, it turns out our guests are racist. And she goes, ew. And I was like, I know, right? And she goes, are we going to have pie? And I was like, I don't want to have racist pie. And she's like, yeah, no, that's okay. We can have it in the morning. I was like, great. Tell Ruben that like, they want pie, like no pie. She's like, no, it's no Yeah. So then I just like left the house. I went outside. I like took a bottle of wine and I like went and sat under the stars. They've got like tons of acreage and I, and I just stayed there. And then like, I eventually like an hour and a half later, see that they leave. And then I can hear my husband doing like echolocation. Like he, he's like, whistle, whistle. And I'm like, clap, 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 clap. And he's like, whistle, whistle. Cause it's like way out in this huge property in the middle of the dark. And he's like looking for me and he comes back in and he's like, Hey babe, just so you know, we didn't have pie. Good. <laughs> We're not having racist pie. Those fuckers like, don't get also, pie. We spent the rest of the night trying to talk them down and it just, they wouldn't go anywhere. And then basically what happened after that for days, I, of course, in the morning I woke up and I apologized to Ruben's mother. I was like, look, I, I can't apologize for anything I said, but I can absolutely apologize for putting you in an impossible position in your home with, you know, your people. I'm so sorry about that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but then what happened was, 
for days after, weeks after actually, months. So they kept talking about, well, you know, the way to talk about racism is not like that. So like the tone policing and all this stuff. And I just kept having to say, I can't help but notice how much time we're talking about how I addressed racism rather than your racist friends. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I can't help but notice that again, all the conversation is coming around to how we're, how we're supposed to combat this, how people change, how whatever. Why are we talking about that? I don't fucking care. People keep dying. People keep, you know, be perishing at the hands of our healthcare system and like education system. I don't fucking care how I'm talking about it. Mm-hmm. Like, stop talking about how I'm talking about it. Talk mm-hmm. about the talk issue. about it. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Like if we spend a fraction, of it, so basically all, I just realized that every time we talk about how we talk about racism, it's a signal boost for white fragility. Mm-hmm. It actually literally mm-hmm. upholds racist systems. And it's like what climate change deniers do, right? Mm-hmm. They say, um, uh, argue the controversy, not the science. Yes. And that is what people are doing. Yes. That is what they're doing. They are, they are keeping us in controversy on the left. And mm-hmm. you may be well-intentioned that you want to talk about, like, you know, you want to tone police or, like, you know, fragility. Change and hearts and minds. Yeah, shame. You know, we shouldn't guilt and shame people. Fuck you. That actually, literally upholds and perpetuates exactly. oppressive systems. Mm-hmm. So I'm just sick of it. And any chance I get to find anybody who's willing to listen to me about it, I'll totally take up because mm-hmm. like nobody likes to hear that shame isn't all that bad. Nobody likes to hear that we need to have what I call arresting emotional experiences because I don't know if those people, I, let me, let me backtrack. I'm damn sure that they will be bred in the bone racist till the day they die. They may not think they're racist, but they might make small steps or whatever. But what I am pretty sure of is they will have some discomfort about uh, arguing their position Mm -hmm. when they don't know everybody at the table. Mm -hmm. And that is social proof. Mm -hmm. We need to create the conditions in which it's absolutely unacceptable when that shit is so not tolerated. Mm -hmm. Is that sends the signal that mm-hmm. we in our culture, you can be in our culture, but we will not abide that kind of bullshit. Right. Yeah. Like, like smoking. I mean, I know it's more complicated than that. And that's something that came up when we talked, I think the first time with Tad was, you know, there's people that, that smoke cigarettes. Right. And, and over time there were like social mores changed, public policy changed, data research and, and just public opinion. And it was sort of like all of a sudden you actually can't smoke inside and you can't smoke around me. You can smoke. Right, but not tw- 25 feet but away. That's anyway. right, but not around me. And, 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 and because at every turn, you know, people kind of got the message that that was not okay here. This was not a space for that. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can have your own space and whatever, have your cognitive liberty and your mm-hmm. smoking, <laughs> you know, and your bodily liberty or whatever. Um, but that it became at every turn something that was unacceptable and that actually changed behavior. This is so much more complicated than that. So I, I don't want to like sort of be like, that's all that it takes, you know, or that's the sort of understanding. But um, this notion of the universal truthhood of opinion, 
mm-hmm. you know, therefore, like just because everyone has an opinion, that means all opinions are valid, and and that we need to tolerate each other's opinions. And this this sort of push for for tolerance that I think is you know something that we saw a lot in the in the '90s around you know kind of the multicultural work, at least in education when I was in public school, um, you know, is like my not all opinions are created equal. Like my opinions don't have a body count, you know? (laughs) I mean, well, I, maybe they do. I have a lot of unexamined, you know, bias and stuff too, but you know, this idea that we just need to, let's agree to disagree. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. and what Carmen was talking about with the, that you had said something and Rachel, we've talked about this before over and in this spiritual world, it's, I think, very important was the shame and the guilt piece mm-hmm. and how I'm seeing working in these worlds um, that the shame and the guilt like are very much like, no, 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 no. And I'm seeing this, what I call like the, you know, the white Christian capitalist culture of America. And I'm seeing that shame and that guilt piece is a very much a Christian ideal. Even though they use it as a tool, it becomes this ideal that we don't want to shame people. We don't want to guilt people. We want to be, I don't know what it is, just softer or, you know, it's this, you know, that Christian, like, it's not the eye for an eye, two for the tooth. It's just like turn the other cheek, keep turning the other cheek piece that we've reestablished and somehow interwoven in these new age philosophies where if you try to actually be confrontational or confront in these types of, um, communities or circles or or it becomes like we're you know when you're talking about justice and racial justice and social justice um you become an agit you know uh, an aggressive agitator all these things that are not acceptable in Mm -hmm. spiritual circles and communities which has really made me see like oh you're you're really just holding up white uh, colonizer Christian American cultural ideals in this uh, in this and totally other different sort of aesthetic with mm-hmm. a different language. Yeah, it's all That's, white purity, right? It's, it's all white, white purity. purity. It's a lot of white purity, clean energy. But practicing what I'm seeing indigenous traditions or ceremonies or rituals or taking from different cultures like whatever and I'm seeing it but I'm also seeing this white purity around it and it's very confusing for me because I've been part of these and I'm also you know like we've talked about like I read Tarot in ways that are you know sort of counseling type space holding for people Mm -hmm. and it gets very tricky for me I don't want to present into that and also, um, I don't care about getting actually pushed out or ostracized or anything like that, but it's like, how could we be, um, do the line of work that we do and understand that? I don't think we can do the line of work we do without talking about racial justice and social justice. I don't think that they actually get to be separated. And I don't mm-hmm. also think that we have to be, you know, contained to this language that feels so good all the time for everybody. Well, and it's not too many steps to see how uh, how enmeshed spirituality and um, it's not just an American myth, but a North American myth of the rugged individual mm-hmm. uh, and capitalism are, mm-hmm. are just like, I mean, it, you know, there's no difference between law of attraction and prosperity gospel. They're, like, mm-hmm. honestly, mm-hmm. it's... It's so much about the hyper individual benefit, and there's no there's no steps between that and white supremacy. There really isn't. And I would beseech white ladies working in any spiritual 
um, self-improvement, transformative space mm -hmm. to develop a much more mature and nuanced and resilient concept mm -hmm. of shame. Um, because when we center and demand comfort and safe spaces as white ladies, I don't fucking care <laughs> how many other intersectional oppressions you have. When we center and demand comfort, unintentional as though this may be, we are functionally oppressing people yes. who have less power than us. We, we are functionally doing that. So we may not want to. Obviously, that's not what all us well-intentioned white women want to do, mm -hmm. but that is what we are doing. And um, I have very little tolerance mm -hmm. for white ladies uh, saying, I don't feel safe mm -hmm. in like 90% of situations. Mm -hmm. I, I honestly, the co-option of the word safe, yeah. I know, I know there's a whole bunch of like intersectional, blah, blah, blah. honestly, there's times and places to use that word. And yeah. most of them, most of the time, it is inappropriate. It is upholding. I don't, if, whether you can handle me calling it white fragility, or if it's just a lack of resilience, whatever feels better for you, it is inappropriate to demand mm -hmm. comfort and safety. And when you do so, it, th there's an excellent paper I commend to Anyone who will spend the time called decolonization is not a metaphor. Oh, I love that. Uh, I love that one. Yes. It's not. That's another word. We, we're not decolonizing our minds. Decolon I think I found that through you on, yeah. your, Facebook page, on your Facebook page. It is. Decolonization is the repatriation of land right. and sovereignty right. to First Nations people. So we're not going to decolonize spirituality. Mm -hmm. That is not what it is. It is giving back land. So when we use, when we co-opt the terms of social justice and apply them in a, a spiritual or personal development realm, mm -hmm. that is a move to innocence. It's a move to purity. It's a move to like, you know, and this, this kind of nativism in spirituality where we're, we're, we love the First Nations so much. And so we love the earth-based spirituality. And so it's an act of honoring and da, 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 da. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay. What you are revealing to me is that you have done no research into the history of how you acquired that knowledge. You have done no critical thought into what it means that they are oppressed today and you are, especially if you're fucking making money off it, mm -hmm. that's bad news. I've done it. I have yeah. done it. I have, I've studied Vision Quest, mm -hmm. an apprentice with a white man. Nice guy, well-intentioned guy. But quite frankly, yeah. I've spent enough of my time and energy listening to self-justifying defensive white men. Mm -hmm. And honestly, like if those traditions were not given to me, and even if they were, I'd be, you know, very, um, I mm -hmm. would be remiss in capitalizing off them. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I know that a whole bunch of people, and many of them are my clients, you know, I mentor women in this path of mm -hmm. like how to... Um, how to lead with integrity in spiritual spaces and um, unpack our privilege and where we are um, being imperialist in our practices and our businesses and all of that. And like, and not because I have any um, expertise, but because I fucked up so much yeah, yeah. And, and had to uh, 
reform in public. And here's the thing about white purity, and especially for white women. Everybody wants to be perfect. Nobody wants to be reformed. Yep. Right? And especially so here's, not in public places. Totally. Like and this is what we need to do. So there's a couple of things. Okay, I'm like getting totally tangential, but I just want to kind of like flip that one thing. So hold, place hold for me. I do want to talk about how to um, uh, better use our spiritual tools in mm -hmm. a more respectful way, but I just want to address this thing about reformation. Mm -hmm. Shame and honor are both neutral tools and they can be used and abused by patriarchy in terrible ways. Just like education is a tool that is neutral, it can be used to teach math or intolerance, right? A hammer can build a house or bash a head in. Shame is an insufficient but important tool in how we create culture. The flip side of it is honor. So in collectivist cultures that use shame as a form of social influence, and if we're being honest here, social control, you look, there are many successful cultures to do this. Japan, you know, like there are many cultures that do this. Uh, so it, it's, it's pretty North American centric to say shame is bad and toxic. We're in the, we're caught in this binary of like, mm -hmm. I don't want to be debilitated by shame, but I also don't want to be motivated by shame. It's like, you know what? There's plenty of fucking middle ground we can tread here. Mm -hmm. Shame is, is in and of itself is useful. And the way to make it more useful, one of them, there's several, but is to return honor to reformation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can be a fuck up and stay in the group. Mm -hmm. You know, and in fact, it's even more honorable. Right. See that you have fucked up and you return, you know, contrite and mm -hmm. you reform, your actual behavior changes, mm -hmm. then we should honor you. That mm -hmm. is an honorable path, which is why, you know, like like I have an episode coming out of my podcast where I get fucking nailed on my language by this poet, she who is a Mohawk woman. And she fucking, like, it's humiliating. It's super yeah. humiliating. But I was like, you know what? I'm just going to throw that out unedited because this is Carmen getting, mm -hmm. you know, called out publicly. And it's very painful. For uh -huh. me. But mm -hmm. this is the muscle we need to build. And so I'm going to just keep dominating for just a second here. No, please the do. thing I want to say about spirituality and like you were saying, Mary Beth, like, you know, you participate in things and then you're like, this is kind of tricky. This isn't of my tradition. What do I do? I mean, as I said, it's super shit to uh, be removed or leave your homeland and then, you know, find that your connections with your ancestry are broken. Just like fucking black people have been telling us about forever, you know? So it's like, yeah, white people have the same problem. If you live in North America, probably most of your ancestry is very difficult to, to follow mm -hmm. unless you come from very elite circles. Mm -hmm. um, and so reclamation of our own indigeneity from mm -hmm. where we come from is so important because if you look at something like smudging, like mm -hmm. say smudging, totally offside. Like if you're white, I just, I, I, I just can't really condone it, but every culture uses smoke to cleanse and purify. Like if you're mm -hmm. from the Mediterranean, it was probably, um, you know, rosemary. If you That's are right. from, you know, a lot of places in um, like a, the Arabian Peninsula, it would have been like frankincense and resins, you know. If you're from sort of Celtic, like white European ancestry like me, it was mugwort, you know, like we all have them. And as we find them, it's both, it's this bittersweet thing, right? It's like heartbreaking, but also 
a relief because the thing that we love about the indigenous people from North America is that they, and the thing that we covet is their sense of connection to land and place, mm-hmm. which is again, why we have to really think about like, how do we return things back to them? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, reclaiming our own indigeneity from where we come from and just recognizing that piece is so important. And then the other thing would be, let's say somebody gave it to you. Let's say a First Nations taught you this and you're still okay with like, you know, then you need to credit that specific person and that Mm. specific nation. And if you don't know, you better fucking find out. Otherwise you don't use it. And if you're Mm. going to do work, like when I've been leading my retreats, like, or like I, I did some questing work in Death Valley. And so finding out, okay, that's Timosha Shoshone, and I'm going to call and see if they have a, you know, cultural interpreter or an elder and ask, what's the protocol to come and do spiritual work? How can I do this in a good way? And I've done it with the local nations and nations when I've been like going places. And I'll tell you, the first thing that happens is somebody picks up the phone and you say, I'm like coming to do sacred work in your space. And on your land, and I'm wondering if there's protocol I should know about how to do that in a good way. You know, so this is even not even the best. What I should be saying is, is it okay if I come? Yeah. To my next step. Um, but it's like, okay, it's booked. I'm going to this thing. And the first thing you get is just silence because they're like, I'm sorry, what? Yeah. Next scratch. Yeah. And the second thing is, I'm just going to get my manager. And the manager comes on and is like, wow, you know, like, yeah, we do have a protocol and here's some important things you should know. Like, don't pick that plant. That's a sacred plant. Don't burn that. That's, you know, that, no, don't do that. You know, and you, when you come on the land, this is what the kind of offering you should give, you know? And so now when I'm like going places, that's the first thing is like, okay, I'm going to call that band or that um, nation or, you know, in the U.S. would be that tribal office and say, can I come and do a retreat where you are? If that's okay with you, who would be the elder or the cultural, like who should I be talking to to make sure I know the protocol? So what kind of gifts should I bring, you know? And like, and then it's like, it kind of becomes like this other stress, like, oh shit, I've got to get a gift for the chief and the four counselors. Uh-huh. That would be good. Like, you know, like there's this whole, well, I should support Aboriginal artists. Okay. But then is that going to set up like competition? What should I, oh, like there's this just like a whole like kind of shit storm of stuff you have to learn. But I mean, that's called cultural literacy. That's called com- cultural competency. Right. And we've got a lot of ways that we need to catch up. And I'll tell you, that'll build some resilience to discomfort because those are super awkward conversations. But um, Would you recommend that people, like, who should be doing that? Like, when I, you know, I, there was, there was a, a like, it, is it just, like, if you're doing a sort of spiritual kind of retreat, or is it, what if you're doing, like, a, you know, transformate, personal transformation through intuitive painting or something, for example? I would do it personally. Like, if I was doing any sacred work, I'd want to know who are the ancestors of the land that I'm on? Because if I'm a spiritual person, I believe that the ancestors are there and I better fucking ask permission to be there. Or am I like, is this cool and what's not cool? So the, what I often say is, I recognize your ancestors have probably a lot of feelings about you know, me being there as the settler. 
and I, and I can't help what's happening politically, but I do want to do it in a good way. What do I need to know about your ancestors and your people in order to be on your land in a good way? And then that's where I've learned so much about like, what are the sacred plants in that area? So I can say to people, hey, if you're going to go for a walk in the forest to inspire you to paint, don't fucking take any, um, you know, mesquite. Like, right. and I mean, the first thing, of course, like if I was hosting, mm-hmm. I, I pay, I give an honorarium and I, and I have an elder come and tell all the participants personally, I don't market that because that would be exploitation, mm-hmm. but it's like, it's, it's part of the opening protocol. That's what I would do when I've just been participating. I just call and say, I'm going on a retreat. I'm doing a wilderness quest at the mercy of the ancestors of the land. It's super scary to be out in the desert by myself. How could I be there in a good way? Is there any gift? You know, and, and, and they'll say like, yeah, don't touch this plant. Um, water is super sacred. So if you would offer a, a drink of water to the plant before you drink, that would be great. You know, and, and, and you know, what, what the wonderful woman at Tibisha Shoshone said was, you should come down and have some Indian tacos. <laughs> I was like, wow. Mm. I think it's important to even note that it's not even if you're just putting these things on, but as somebody who's like wants to spend some money and go to retreat, people listen, you know, like for solution based for people listening, if you are considering going to a gathering or a retreat to call the organizers up and ask that question, what have you done to mm-hmm. prepare, ask permission and find out information around this area of land that you're going to use to do this work on? Totally. So and important. I, I knew that he had done nothing <clears throat> for years. So I wasn't interested in like calling him out. Right. But I did tell him and other participants, this is what I did. I called the tribe. And so the day after we're done, I'm going down and I've brought some gifts for them because they were so helpful. And so, mm-hmm. you know, after the retreat, that's what happened. And, and somebody else was really interested in that. And he was like, oh, reconciliation. That's kind of a cool thing. And mm-hmm. what are we going to do? And I was like, well, I got to drive for like six hours down to the other end of Death Valley. It's totally out of my way for that to go down. And I have these presents and I brought some gifts from the First Nations where I come from. I brought some books and I thought it would be good for the kids in their community and blah, blah, blah. You know, so you do something thoughtful to be like, mm-hmm. hey, thanks for letting me be here. Yeah. You know, like, I think... I think that's a step in reconciliation, like acknowledging who are the ancestors. If you're a spiritual person, I think you should be interested in knowing <laughs> what the spirits of the place are thinking when you're coming. What, can we Can we kind of, um, that was amazing. I just learned like a bajillion things. Thank you. Um, I, I kind of want to back backtrack into the, the sort of shame piece just for a moment, just because it's, it's the reason why I got connected with you, Carmen. Um, and it was after, you know, I sort of was paying attention to what you were saying. And it was also right around the time that I was really looking at like, um, you know, Brene Brown's work around, um, shame and resiliency. And I was looking on her website at, at the, like the research and the cohorts that she was, um, studying and my understanding and which may not reflect the truth, <laughs> um, is that she like talked to maybe a thousand people, and like, they were all American. Like Twelve hundred people. They were all American. Mm-hmm. They were forty percent white, mm-hmm. so mostly white because the other groups were like you know not as many. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I can't help but but wonder like how 
how our own sort of all those things that we've already talked about around shame and how we think about shame um, have have influenced sort of that research and then how that research is then being um, used by the white lady spirituality personal development community, white ladies finding themselves, um, to to uphold a certain amount of, of fragility because we are categorically like aversive and and allergic to shame. Mm-hmm. And I don't and 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 there's a missing piece there. And I can't and and I love I actually really love like what Brene Brown brings to the table. It's not usually so much what people bring, it's what's left out. Right. You know, and I do see her like I, you know, I have a real strong side eye for, you know, white ladies trying to coddle other white ladies into feeling better about themselves without a certain essential nutrient of justice, which I think mm-hmm. is a, a missing nutrient in, in, in our lives and is a, a big, I think, reason why so many of us are so fucking anxious. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Um, and, and I see her kind of like, I see her t- having some race conversations. I see her talking about Black Lives Matter on Twitter, like a little bit. And I see her course correcting a bit when she's posted some kind of like meme that really didn't like, didn't have the nuance and people were like, uh, mm, and she kind of went, sorry, did not take it down, did not, you know, scrub mm-hmm. any race, but right. let it hang there. So like, I'm not sort of, I'm, I'm not really, I don't have, um, like snark in my heart for her mm-hmm. <laughs> the way I might for like Liz Gilbert or whatever, yeah. um, you know, but I still think that there's something there's something I, I don't, there's, there's a connection that, that is being lost there. And I'm wondering yeah. if you have thoughts well, on that. White supremacy loves the myth of universality. And like, I think we should be very suspicious of universality. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when we take research that's done on American people, about shame and say, and therefore this is universal. It's like, so first of all, your culture is very specific to a time and place and has a certain nature about it. Um, And so I'm very suspicious of that. And her work is great for what she was looking for. Mm -hmm. It was not researching shame in cultural movements or, you know, historical context, or, you know, she was not researching shame for the betterment of society, trying to tackle those problems. All of her work is very much about individuals transcending, which is fucking not the same. That's trickle down social policy. It's not going to fucking happen. So like, Brene Brown, fantastic, great for that tool. Mm-hmm. That tool is being misused in social justice. So what you hear, I'm sorry, can I just pause? Because my dog's so great, but she really needs me for one second. Please do. Please do. <laughs> I just had to carry my computer around my house to find my charger's phone. So people will say in white lady, well-intentioned white lady space, that's where most of us are, right? Whether it's yoga class or like whether we're teaching or like in online festival, festival, well-intentioned white lady space, they will say shame is a tool of the patriarchy. No, it isn't. Shame is a tool used by the patriarchy. So if your culture sucks, you're going to be sucky in the way you use shame. That's like how that's going to go. 
but shame itself, I believe, is, is inherent in human nature. It's how we get feedback. It's how we know what's okay here and what isn't. And in an in a intact culture, if I can call it that, I don't, I don't really know what that means anymore, but, mm-hmm. but I think people kind of get the gist. But in a, in a connected culture, shame is used by elders, you know, to, to like mock young people, to kind of tease them and, and sort of be like, whoa, kiddo, you are way outside the bounds of what we need to do. Shaming mm-hmm. and exclusion can be used to be like, you go away and think about what you've done because that is so not cool here. So there's a couple things it can do. Um, shame can, um, it can signal that this is not going to be tolerated but you can come back into the group if you've done it, if you've reformed. And it can signal to everybody else who is um, being oppressed, we care about you. Like we care about what's happening to you. So it's a social signal that says, you know, like this is, this is not okay. Mm-hmm. So like at the racist dinner party, I don't fucking care if they reform all I kept thinking was, what would I do if my friend who's First Nations was here? Yes. Like, this would yes. not be okay. I'd want to signal to her, I care about right. you. You're, and so this is the thing. When people are like, yeah, but shaming is never sustainable. Oh, my God. A teaspoon of a threat of shame causes discussion, comments, feedback, and, like, dissent, and, like, people fucking can't handle even the threat of shame when they even slightly observe it in other people. I'd say that's pretty effective use of social it's Very effective. And I, I mean, shame has been extremely useful for me. I, those, the sensations and the feeling of shame, I can only talk from my own personal perspective. And I don't know if anything I've ever done has brought the emotion or feeling of shame in others and it's changed them. But I'll tell you the people and the elders in my life who have used it and even just socially seeing it where I feel ashamed. I'm like, Ooh, it's been useful because it makes me want to reposition myself and reconsider myself and grow Mm. do shit differently because I got a conscience. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's an argument to be made. I don't know. Someone else is going to have to make it because I can't flesh this out, but I think there's an argument to be made that we should be thinking about preserving our sense of shame in a shameless society. Yeah. Like, honestly, I really feel like there's something. And so when we talk about shame and say, you know what? Shaming or making people feel guilty never creates sustainable change. I'd be like, A, I'd love to see your cultural research on that. Not individuals overcoming, but I'd love to see the research. Second, um, I'd really love us to talk about post-war Germany Mm -hmm. because, you know, like, what are you talking about sustainable? Because they had like 40 or 50 years of deep, tremendous intergenerational shame. Mm -hmm. And you know, half a century before there was a resurgence again of any kind of neo-Nazi, you know, any kind of real presence. After a tremendous fuck up, the, the, the need to reform and regain honor was so important that it lasted half a century. So I would love to see the research that, that shame is never is never sustainable because I, I, I just think that there's an argument to be made for it. I really do. And, and I think that when people spend time, it's again, like, you know, 
argue the controversy, not the science. When people spend time, well-intentioned white ladies are like, yeah, but the way that you did it, or it never works, or shame is a tool of patriarchy. It's like, oh my God, you have to just fucking shut up about it and get over it because you're boosting. This is a signal boost for white supremacy. It keeps us here. You, are, you don't want to, but you are literally creating the conditions in which more black and brown people die. Exactly. So just shut up, grow up, and get over it for a bit. Mm-hmm. Like if you are so, tra- and, and also don't talk about the other ways in which you are oppressed. And so it means that you can't hold your center while this is happening. Mm-hmm. Remove yourself from the room, have your pain, but don't mm-hmm. put it on the altar. That's mm-hmm. not what we're fucking doing here. Like mm-hmm. go deal with yourself, but mm-hmm. like, no, you're derailing something super important. Mm-hmm. It's gonna, there is no way that it's going to be comfortable. Again, mm-hmm. in that decolonization, it's not a, a metaphor argument. They say at the end, like solidarity, I can't, I can't remember what it is, exactly what they say, but they're like, solidarity and allyship basically is like, it's a precursor, it's a prerequisite to any change happening, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean there isn't going to be conflict and it doesn't mean it's going to preserve white settler futurity, right? meaning we're not saying that we're going to let you go on in perpetuity here. Like yes. I, you know, so they're saying we're, we're not saying that this means we're all going to get along. Oh, it means yeah. it's a precursor to fucking being human. And I can't right. explain to you why you should care about other people, but you just should. Right. And, mm-hmm. and you're, you know, it's kind of like, you're not going to get the, the, the ally cookie, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, 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 that's really I, helpful in the, the comment or the quote you said about the, sh- the shame is the tool, like shame mm-hmm. is a tool and depending on who's using it, mm-hmm. it's going to evoke some different things. Like the patriarch yeah. does use shame as a totally. tool. Sexual but also, shame. go ahead. To, sorry to interrupt. I got no, so no, no, go ahead. Say no, go ahead. Dominant culture shames other cultures left, right, and center. When you say shaming is unsustainable, you are erasing cultures in which that is successful and sustainable. Look at like Lakota culture, you know, you know, probably heard at Standing Rock, a a fellow, you know, uh, raped a water protector, you know, a a First Nations American Indian fellow raped. um, And so before they took him to the police. He, you know, was publicly walked and out of camp and his his braid cut off and then sent over to the police. So like mm-hmm. you are erasing cultures that know how to use shame a lot better than we do. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. to suggest that a collectivist tool isn't uh, effective, again, is perpetuating white supremacy and that that myth of white purity and individualism. And it is another kind of move to innocence where we're like, but I really care. I just want everybody to be really respectful. It's like, yeah, but isn't it convenient that the people who are getting all the respect are white and female? You know, it's like, isn't it convenient that we're spending all this time talking about this again? Like, Mm -hmm. I just feel like we should be really suspicious of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Be suspicious. Yeah, and and I I, I want to plug just evolutionary biology too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like you know, like like shit that goes through you know half a million years of of human evolution maybe has a purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, whether, yeah, whether it's anxiety, depression, you know, um, we've we've pathologized you know much of of the human experience into in the spiritual circle what's called like 
unclean energy, unhealed wounds, unhealed shadow, or my favorite, negative vibrations. Uh, yeah. Or like low, low vibration. Low which is, vibration. Which is so like just anti-science that, you know, and I know that science isn't the whole picture either. I do believe in magic. I, I'm magical and fucking radical. Like I need the both of the things. Um, but, you know, like <laughs> to say that like gamma rays are like better or worse than x-rays because of the vibration, I'm just like, fuck your fucking non-math that's happening here. Mm. <laughs> well, I'm talking about non-math, you know? like let's talk about non-scale. Like when you start talking about um, how problematic shaming is or guilting people when it in their you know racial justice work or like guilting them for not doing enough or like feeling ashamed because of the way a person's been called out or whatever it's just like you know what the scale of problem between white supremacy and people dying of shame is like we're just nowhere near close to the place where how we're doing it needs to be a problem you know like it's we're just nowhere near close and again i don't know if this was recorded but like could I, I and I wish I could remember who said this. I she has a great blog. I think her name's Michelle, uh, American woman of color, Michigan. I'm gonna find it, but she basically made this amazing argument about like, could Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy have existed without the threat of Malcolm X? Mm -hmm. You have to have them both, neither one is sufficient. And so white people find that very palatable, this idea of forgiveness or whatever, and erasing that uh, it's because we're afraid, you know? We're, we're afraid of what the alternative is, and so we need to preserve our comfort at all costs. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, nobody is dying of shame. So right. fuck nobody you in your conversations of shame. Like, just, yeah, I'm, I, I find that, yeah, fragility, lack of resilience, just intolerable and I have no patience for it because mm -hmm. it's preserving something so abhorrent to my human nature. I just, I can't handle it anymore. And I won't tolerate that under the guise of spirituality. Cause if my spiritual work, if my soul work isn't benefiting the collective, what the fuck is it for? All right. Uh, I think we definitely need to debrief this excerpt of the Confronting Whiteness conversation. So let's have a Ruben Nation segment. Welcome back to the show. Love of my life, Ruben Anderson. Hello again. Thank you for being here. Okay, so before we get to your thoughts, Ruben, I want to ensure, for the sake of clarity, that I let all the listeners know that the links for the resources that I mentioned in that conversation are on my website, carmenspaniola.com. And I particularly want to highlight uh, four different resources. The first one is that paper by Bruce Alexander, The Roots of Addiction in Free Market Society. Changed my life. Heard about it from you. Mm -hmm. Mind-blowing. Mm -hmm. Fundamental, I would say, to my work on behavior change. Right. Uh, the second paper came into our lives very recently through Juliana Willers, who's going to be on the, the show soon, uh, called Decolonization is Not a Metaphor. That one yes. definitely advanced my thoughts on what exactly reconciliation might look like in, in practice and what decolonization actually means and what it doesn't mean. Mm -hmm. That one I was actually, uh, I was messaging Juliana as I was reading it. 
saying that I was blown away by the acuity of the authors. They're, mm-hmm. The precision they use is lancing. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful thing to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a ballet of words. Uh, beautiful like a car crash. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but I but I feel you. I feel it. I feel it in my bones. Uh, the third resource I struggled in that conversation. I couldn't remember, and I really want to make sure I credit uh, Michelle R. Smith with my understanding of the dynamic interplay between the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. Which I mean, I summarize it as saying, you know, King Jr.'s legacy exists by the grace of Malcolm X's uh, embrace of, um, you know, aggression, aggression, or at least a strong assertion of, of rights. I, I don't know that I want to say violence, but yeah, there's a, there's, it's the um, counterweight to the nonviolent um, approach that the white loves to um, mythologize about Martin Martin Luther King Jr. And I just want to, just before you interject, I just want to make sure I give her website. It's thebluesteyeblog.wordpress.com. I, though, is just the letter. So it's bluest, letter I, blog.wordpress.com. And she's a phenomenal writer named Michelle R. Smith. What were you going to say about that? I just want to add, actually, at the same time that um, she wrote that, we read a bunch of other things. Um, One was that, uh, and it may have been through her, that uh, Martin Luther King actually, his house was quite an armory. Mm -hmm. So Martin Luther King had a ton of guns in the house. Yes. Because he was prepared to defend himself and his family. And Mm -hmm. around the same time, This is shortly after the election when Richard Spencer got punched in the face Mm -hmm. and a bunch of people started freaking out about violence. Mm -hmm. Um, There was an article called Why the Left Needs a Gun Culture. Mm -hmm. And there were links within that article to books written about uh, black self-defense organizations in the South. So these were... Historically and... Yeah, yeah, during the civil rights era, Mm -hmm. these were you know, neighborhood protection leagues mm-hmm. of armed African-Americans. So I just want to flag that as being separate from Malcolm X, who was part of the Nation of Islam. You know, this right. was a, a whole different, more homegrown, <laughs> perhaps, mm-hmm. um, counterweight or uh, not counterweight, but impetus to yeah, the power of there was, Martin Luther King. Yeah, there was a strong motivation for whites to embrace Martin Luther <laughs> King Jr.'s nonviolent approach. Mm-hmm. However, he did not repudiate uh, those who were using violence to defend themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so that whole concept, uh, that reframe in my mind of just how white culture has mythologized um these kinds of things was highlighted by Michelle R. Smith. And I really want people to read her work because she sets my mind on fire. Uh, The fourth resource that was, uh, this is a book that was given to me by our dear friend, James uh, McKinnon, J.B. McKinnon, illustrious author. Uh, And it was the fodder that I needed to be able to talk about shame in public because it it was a bee in my bonnet for quite a long time. And this book is called Is Shame Necessary? New Uses for an Old Tool by Jennifer Jaquette. And I want to make sure that I read her seven habits uh, because it gives the uh, uh, an overview of the framework 
of how we might use shame well. So I'm just going to read a, a short quote here. Uh, she says, I use the term habits because these are not rules, but generalities. In brief, here are the seven habits. The transgression should, one, concern the audience, two, deviate widely from desired behavior, three, not be expected to be formally punished. The transgressor should, four, be a part of the group doing the shaming, and the shaming should, five, come from a respected source, six, be directed where possible benefits are highest, and seven, be implemented conscientiously. If shaming sticks closely to these habits, it's likely to play an effective role in changing behavior. So I don't want to have a huge conversation just about those habits. Uh, I want to have her on the podcast because, of course, mm -hmm. her work is my jam. Uh, but um, I just want people to know that, it, you know, it may sound simplistic, and I know the knee-jerk reaction is shame is bad. Uh, but there is research out there. Uh, that shows how more collectivist cultures, or even in, within our culture, shame is a tool that can be used effectively. Mm -hmm. So, all right, let's debrief. Rubinations, what are your thoughts? Okay, so first of all, uh, after the first rubination, this being rubination number two, you were like, can you keep it a little shorter? And then you <laughs> sent me this absolute barn burner hour and 45-minute conversation uh, so I feel like I'm being set up to fail here. Okay, well, we're only addressing <laughs> 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. So kind of the first half, people should go to Rachel Rice's uh, site to see the rest. But yeah. uh, I apologize. I, <laughs> I set an unrealistic expectation on you. So, and, you know, this is a fascinating topic. So I've got a lot more leeway here. So carry on. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, okay, so I have just a few things that... I thought were really interesting. So I just want to point them out as I thought this was interesting and then, but I don't want to talk about them so much. Uh, uh, except I'm going to lie because the first one I actually want to talk about. So you said, <laughs> it took me a really long time to care about racism, mm -hmm. which I just think is fascinating as a statement, but it twigged me because in my work on behavior change, I talk about the word caring a lot in that we say, people should care. We wag our finger at people and say, people should care. And that really offends me it hurts me because it's kind of a hateful frame of you don't care because you're a bad person mm. when in fact what i think coming from working on behavior is that people do care they're just not caring about the same things that we're caring about so they're caring about other very important things in the world um so I, I just want to position that it, it remains true that it took you a long time to care about racism that doesn't mean that you're an uncaring person though Thank you. Yeah. Uh, you told the story of the racist dinner party. I it did. remains a very potent experience. You did, however, say that you took a bottle of wine outside, and in fact, it was a bottle of Bailey's. Oh, yeah, that's and right. And so the result was the next morning you had a terrible sweet liqueur hangover. That's true. So I that's want, true. I just want that on the record. It was, a, it was like the embodied... Uh, truth, the embodied experience, because I, I emotionally was hungover from that for like a year. So, yeah. Um, the thing that you did so relentlessly the next several days and which just, uh, I think is one of the most important things that has happened around me in the past few years is, is you, you kept pointing out how the conversation was always about the way that you spoke 
and if you'd spoken differently, perhaps they would have been more receptive to discussing their racism. So you pointed out so relentlessly that the 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 critique was always about um, the way you spoke and not about the way the racist spoke mm-hmm. or the way the racist thought. And I just think that is so important. And it's it's a step beyond tone policing. It's almost like thought policing. You know, <laughs> that's the the it's it's a a fundamental. Well, I, I guess my next point is as I want to say also that it's a fundamental misunderstanding of the problem in that the assumption is that if you'd said something differently the racists would have seen the light and become not racist Mm -hmm. and i think again based on my behavior change research that they wouldn't that there's nothing you could say right They, they are in fact racist and what they're doing is just selecting a reasonable explanation for their racism at the moment. And mm-hmm. if you knock that down, they'll pull up another reasonable explanation to be racist. Yeah. So they're wedded to something, like, for example, owning unceded land that yeah. was stolen from First Nations. Like, they're wedded to some sort of privilege. Mm-hmm. And all they're doing is, like, selecting the next in line of a bunch of reasonable-sounding explanations. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's... it's um, It's... The, the proof that there is nothing we could say is mm-hmm. that we've been talking about racism for decades and decades and it still exists. Mm-hmm. And so that this is not an education problem. Uh, the other thing I want to say is, you know, after a couple of days, like really it's all I could do to defend myself mm-hmm. because it just kept coming up this conversation about well, how you approach and you, and the calling in and the empathizing and the, you know, bringing people along. And I just kept, personally, I just kept feeling like I, I just, I couldn't think of anything else to say, but why are we talking about how I'm approaching this? Why are we not talking about your racist friends? Like, mm-hmm. what are you going to do about that? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just felt like it, it was very crazy making. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, carry mm-hmm. on. Um, well, I just hope I was articulate enough in that, that I just want to, I found it so incredibly acute on your part that you were able to just continually re-identify that it was, Mm. uh, that you were the one that was being chastised, not the racist. Mm -hmm. Um, and then as we talked about it later, that we were identifying the problem that the racists aren't actually changeable mm-hmm. in that way. They aren't going to become uh, not racist because we say something smart over mm-hmm. dinner. Yeah, like we're just missing the magic words. Mm-hmm. Like there's an abracadabra that undoes people's racism. Yeah, yeah. And, and beyond racism, like that is a big problem in our culture. Like this is a fundamental misapprehension of our culture is that we think that what we need is the great argument. So mm-hmm. we need the right frames, we need the right images, we need the right slogans, mm-hmm. and then magically we'll save the environment, we'll end racism, we'll mm-hmm. you know, destroy inequality, and that's just fundamentally a wrong mm-hmm. understanding of human behavior. Right. Uh, one more thing, I thought you just, the, the, uh, your statement that a teaspoon of a threat of shame <laughs> is, is incredibly powerful. So I, I just, uh, I love that sentence. Uh, oh, and then I have one story. You talked about debt. Um, and Did I talk about debt in this first half? 
I, I can't. Might have been in the video. That. Yeah, maybe. In which case, uh, let's just say I was overwhelmed by the majesty of the whole conversation. So <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't remember exactly where it happened. But it reminded me of when I, um, when my last grandmother died, my mother's mother died, and uh, I managed to arrange it so that I and my relatives, those relatives who were interested, could fill in her grave with shovels. So we lowered the casket, put on the concrete lid to the crypt, and then we used shovels to to fill it in. And I, as you know, like, so now when, a, when one of our rabbits dies or our two cats have died, I have this thing about I really want to dig a nice grave. You're very, very good at it. Like, straight, square, deep. It, it's, you, you take an artistic, loving, reverent approach. And, and yeah. so for me, it's an act of honoring, mm -hmm. I guess, is that I want to, it's kind of a last thing I can do to show even this cat, you know, who spent mm -hmm. so many years sitting on my belly, mm -hmm. you know, I want to show this cat that they really meant something to me mm -hmm. by trying to dig them the nicest grave I can. Mm -hmm. And so there's something in that, the it's, I guess it's literally a labor of love. It's literally a labor of love. Mm -hmm. And so... I wanted to, when my, when my father's mother died, we, um, you know, we had the ceremony at the graveyard and then went off for lunch and returned to the graveyard. It was all filled in. The hole was all filled in. It was this little tidy mound. And I found that very disconnecting. So I, I worked really hard for my mother's mother to, to try to make it so that I could fill the hole. And I was prepared to fill it. I assumed I was going to be filling it by myself for, mm -hmm. you know, eight hours or whatever, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, but it turned out that um, a few of my strong cousins and I, we were mostly done after 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. Like it, uh, anyhow. Um, I talked, I was, I was talking about this desire to do this love labor. And one of my aunts said, I don't think I need to suffer to grieve her mm. um and i i just feel like this is connected to a lot of what the three of you were talking about in this sort of like this desire to not hurt this desire for everything to be good mm. um that you know shame is something to be eradicated instead of used mm. um that conflict is something to be avoided as opposed to work through Mm -hmm. Well, and it, I think what you're pointing at speaks to the elevation of the white purity, right? Like I am free of mm -hmm. those, <laughs> those mm -hmm. things. And, um, but I, 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 I thought you were going to take this into the, um, white debt. Like the, mm. this is part of, uh, of us not necessarily paying down the debt, but not accruing more interest on, mm -hmm. on white debt. <laughs> um, but I, and, and that, you know, we, we get into in the full length conversation. Um, but I do agree that we were, the three of us were kind of dancing around that notion. And I love your, your metaphor of, uh, because I see you loving, you know, be, beyond the grave, even, you know, like I see the love in the act of labor that you do. And, um, and I, and I would agree that this is a way, as I sit in shame or as I enter difficult conversations and as I 
uh, try to amplify the voices of, and, and experiences and concerns of people who don't have as much privilege as I do, that it is a way that I can express my, my loving concern for my fellow mm-hmm. human. Yeah, I guess I, I mentioned the debt piece and I didn't, uh, it's tied together. I, I don't know what the right word is. It's, it's, it links in, but not so directly. It's kind of obliquely linked, but it, it's funny when you think about, it, we have such a common acceptance of the phrase, no pain, no gain. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we know that if we want to become better athletes, we need to hurt, mm. but it's somehow bizarre Mm-hmm. that at my grandmother's graveside that I would also want my muscles to hurt. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I, I guess I can't articulate why I think that's important, but I hope everyone gets it. I feel you. <laughs> I feel you. Uh, so on the, oh, I lost a linkage there. Okay. So I, um, I, I want to move into the big discussion piece then, which is shame and, uh, collectivist cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, so I lived in Japan for two years, mm-hmm. and I loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, I also worked with a guy named Wolfgang, who was a German cabinet maker. So uh, a master cabinet maker of a level that most people in North America would never meet, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so he left Germany and moved to Canada because he didn't, he couldn't stand the constraints. Mm-hmm. of the traditional collectivist culture of Germany in which he would have to be a cabinet maker in someone else's shop for 30 or 35 years until they died. Mm-hmm. And then perhaps he would be allowed to have his own cabinet shop. So it's not like in North America where you can just, mm-hmm. you you rent a space and put a sign on the door and you're a cabinet maker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it's up to, it's up to the buyers to, to caveat emptor and, you mm-hmm. know, determine if you're good. Um, so that's a very different approach, and I think it that desire for freedom is bred in the bone of North America, of the 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 settlers of North America. Like this kind of notion of freedom from those old world constraints. Mm-hmm. Well, and Wolfgang so coming over would also be a settler. Yes. No. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so. So as you guys talked about the use of shame in a collectivist uh, culture uh, and, you know, and you criticize things like shame never creates sustainable change, etc. But the the challenge I wanted to bring is that we don't live in a collectivist culture. And so then what? And, you know, so I agree with you. I think shame is a useful tool and I don't think we should shy away from using it. However, I do think that we need to be cautious, like you mentioned Germany, mm-hmm. uh, post-war Germany as mm-hmm. a specific example. I think we need to be cautious about looking to those old world examples because North America is a culture of damaged, orphaned mutts. Right. See, and that was actually uh, in prior to this conversation, but we we had some of that feedback from Patricia at the retreat, who uh, is Mm -hmm. Chinese, grew up in Singapore, and said, I hated that aspect of shame, Mm -hmm. you know, it was used all the time as of, you know, the the kind of social control control was very constraining. Um, Again, I, I, I I, I would also still 
argue in a lot of the examples, it's patriarchy, um, less so than the shame. However, mm. I think your point about us not being a collectivist culture uh, and therefore you know, needing to be cautious is extremely valid, which is why I think looking to research, mm -hmm. like how do they use it? How does it work well? And mm -hmm. a lot of uh, Jennifer Jaquette's research is in North America. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think this is, these are very good points. And so we do have to think about what is the more mature way of carrying this aspect of human behavior? You know, can we make some kind of evolutionary leap in consciousness and understanding and civilization? Um, because, you know, and I've said this online in a few different places before that I think we can make a strong case for tribalism with humans, that that is actually what we're built for. But the fact is, you know, the, the horse is out of the barn. We're diverse now and we have to make some kind of leap. And so all we can do is try to learn best practices or, you know, what, what can we draw from in this melting pot culture that would be a more mature understanding? Can we make that change as quickly as possible? Um, and I've also had people say, you know, collectivist cultures have been uh, really challenging for um, a lot of marginalized folks, like, for instance, um, LGBTQ folks and a few different cultures have been brought up to me in, you know, in, in mm -hmm. that way. And again, I, I still think when we really look at the examples, it's often patriarchy is the, pro that's in a patriarchal society. So like pre-patriarchal ancient Greece, homosexuality quite well accepted. Um, many indigenous cultures in North America have lots of language and examples of two-spirit and, mm -hmm. you know, they're totally comfortable with gender spectrum. So I, I, I think this, this is a very interesting area of um, sociolo sociology for me. Mm -hmm. If anybody out there has even more <laughs> studies for me, I, I, please contact me because this is the bone that I can't <laughs> seem to put down. Mm -hmm. um, anything else in, in summation before we wrap it up? Well, just, just on that more, I think that, you know, again, as we said in the last rumination, and as we say so often around our, our house, this is a predicament, not a problem. Mm -hmm. And so if shame only works in a collectivist culture is in fact our first job then to create a collectivist culture mm -hmm. before we use shame. Right. And if that isn't possible, <laughs> uh -huh. then, then what do we do? You know, mm -hmm. so it, it is, I, I guess I'm, I'm asking for a, a ruthless and clear headed, uh, approach to the problem mm. on well, good luck. Both sides. Thank yeah. you. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thank you for your thoughts, Ruben. Um, I want to make sure I get uh, some credits in here. So mm -hmm. to find out more about Rachel, buy her awesome art on her website. She does great art for resistance. A really excellent, beautiful po poster, actually, that I would like to have that says, fuck the police, which I enjoy. Mm -hmm. uh, and her website is rachelrice.com. And you can find out more about Mary Beth's work and especially check out her uh, Living the Tarot courses at marybethbonfiglio.com. And the link for our full conversation is in the show notes on my website, carmenspaniola.com. And just before we wrap up, 
I want to give a shout out to my listeners in Italy. Oh, <laughs> Bella Italia. Uh, that, that, <laughs> that warms my heart. Uh, in case you missed it, I've announced the dates for my wilderness quests in 2017. You can come and hang out with me and Ruben, who is my assistant, for 12 days in the woods, and we'll walk the path of spirit together. Get all the details at carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care. <laughs>